Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we're talking about the Coast Watchers. You might not have heard of the Coast Watchers, and there's a reason for that. They were Allied military intelligence units, specially trained and secretive, who were stationed on remote Pacific islands to observe enemy movements and rescue stranded Allied personnel during the Second World War. The intelligence they gathered is credited with turning the tide of the war in the Pacific. Their radio reports were vital. They gave the Allies a decisive advantage, and they acted as a kind of early warning network when the Japanese were spotted. In fact, they're officially credited with having been crucial and decisive factors in the Allied victories at Guadalcanal and Tulagi. This is an amazing history, and to tell us more, we have the honour of welcoming Second World War veteran Jim Burrows onto the podcast. Jim served as a coast watcher in the South Pacific during the Second World War. He spent 10 months in occupied Japanese territory, and he recounts the brutality of Imperial Japanese forces, the comrades he lost the little-known role of indigenous troops in the Coast Watchers, and in fact, the overall little-known role of the Coast Watchers themselves. To me, Jim is a true war hero, although he wouldn't say it himself. So here is Jim Burrows on the Coast Watchers. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for coming on to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, James. Pretty well, thanks, under the circumstances, James, and just lovely to hear from you. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. Let's get straight into it. What were the Coast Watchers? The uh, Coast Watchers were organised in September 1939 when the war started over in Europe, and it was designed to collect all the expatriates and the people that operated in New Guinea in various businesses to form a, if you like, a secret crowd that uh, with a radio and being taught Morse code to protect Australia from any threat up north. Now, there was lying dying there for a couple of years because that was all over in Europe. But obviously when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and started the Pacific War, it immediately came into operative action. And, for example, one of the early um, plantation owners, Con Page, saw the fleet of uh, Japanese 
naval setup coming down from truck to invade, as it turned out, Kaviang in New Ireland and rebel it in New Britain. Apparently, there were up to 5,000 naval troops and they literally walked into Kaviang and rebel. And after a few, this was uh, on the morning of January the 23rd, 1942, after a bit of a skirmish when a few Aussies and a few Japanese were killed, but it was only a token fight and the Japanese walked into Rabaul and had, of course, not only about 2,000 prisoners to act as slaves, but also to, they had all the infrastructure like food and equipment and so forth. So it was just a slam dunk and that was the start of the Coast Watching Organisation. It consisted probably of about 400, uh, which I was one, and with it probably the same number of natives who were marvellous. But the main defence force that had been foreseen by some smart people in the government had sent up in April 41, that's six months before Pearl Harbour, to act as a defensive force, and it included 273 commandos who had been trained at Tidal River. It contained them, because they were able to act in more than defensive role, and that is an operational role in enemy-occupied territory. So that plus the civilians meant that they had a whole 2,000 more people to use in that manner. So you had two units of these special operations, really. You had, what was it, Z unit and M unit. You had Z unit that was the saboteurs and M unit that was the coast watchers. Is that right? Yeah, well done. You've done your research. In July 1947, <laughs> General Douglas MacArthur, who had become the supreme operator in the area, had formed the Allied Intelligence Bureau, and this was made up of two arms. One was Sabotage, being Z-Special, and they made fame later on when they, a crowd of them uh, sailed into, Melbourne, into Singapore, 2,000 miles away, and sunk about 40,000 tonnes of shipping. But I've got to say that that achievement, which in itself was very heroic, it didn't really contribute much to winning the war like the Coast Watchers did. Now, the other arm was M Special Unit. I've never known the difference of why they call M and Z. M became the intelligence arm, and they became literally the Coast Watchers. I could only work out that M's halfway through the alphabet, or it might be M for a Mercedes, which I've got, and the Benz, the last one is Z, but I don't think that was the real reason. But that was the origin and the operation of Allied Intelligence Bureau. And that was your role, wasn't it? You were an intelligence company in many respects. You were there with your wireless tele-radios to spot and to report enemy activity as it was coming forwards and to help the Allies to counter Japanese offensives. Yes, James. My two brothers, one of whom was a twin, had already been caught up in the war regime and in fact had been relocated to rebel. Because they were already in, my parents wouldn't sign my papers to join the army, which I wanted to do, 
but when I turned 18 and they couldn't stop me, so I joined the army and oddly enough, I actually went into the first army barracks on January the 18th of 1942, which was just a week before Rebel. And this is where I believe a lot of our uh, operations are due mainly to luck. But it turned out that at the first day when we were lined up joining the army, some burly major said, uh, hands up those that have been employed as a in an office or a, a school teacher, stand over there. So because I'd been working in a firm with chartered accountants, I stood over there and he said, the rest of you are bloody infantry. <laughs> so I didn't know that then, but that was the start of my destiny because a year or two later I became a coast watcher. But on that day we walked into Melbourne at the RMIT uh, and learned Morse code for six weeks. I then became operative at the Australian Land Headquarters in Ringwood, which had the only contact with the Aussies in Port Moresby when the Japanese were threatening to come down into Port Moresby and I was involved there. I was later when uh, ladies became available uh, as they was to take our place and move us forward. Uh, I went to Queensland and from there I received an invitation from the authorities to join a secret organisation. I couldn't, with my two brothers up there, I couldn't put my hand up fast enough, even though we were always taught never to volunteer for anything in the army. But with my two brothers up there, I couldn't put my hand up quick enough. And guess what? I finished up, which is absolutely unknown in the history of Australia. I became a member of the US Naval Fleet, the 7th Fleet, in an operation called the Advanced Landing Force. And we then, after training at Bryan Bay and up near Cairns in Australia, we went up in a ship to Ferguson Island. And for nine months, I operated with the Americans as a radio operator in a team of Aussies that were constantly moving up and down in those lovely PT boats, which were fantastic. They used to do about 60 miles an hour with various torpedoes to check out various landing points that were aimed to be invaded by the Americans. So I went to the bottom end of New Britain and Kirawina Island and Woodlark Island, and for some reason they aborted the operation and we switched to uh, Coast Watchers. I think looking back at the history, it was because the Yanks had already uh, invaded the south coast of New Guinea rather than us going in in advance to check out two things, the existence of Japanese, but more importantly, we used to find out from the local natives who, if they're under Japanese control, were absolutely pro-Japanese through fear and fighting and therefore against the Allies. So I then switched to the Coast Watchers and for two and a half years I spent the time as a radio operator with a small uh, group of expatriates and we spent actually two and a half years with the Coast Watchers which included about 10 months in the Gazelle Peninsula in New Britain which was 
under Japanese occupation, but fortunately they didn't find us. They could have had radio detection or um, spotted our parachute drops, but whilst we were under constant danger of capture, we really were quite safe. I was never ever worried about it. I've got a background of where I believe luck's a lot of life and if you have good luck you're good and if you have bad luck like the two brothers who were killed and they come home it was a band of three brothers but I'm the only one that came home much to the sorrow of my lovely mum who dragged us up through the years of depression with my father out of work all the time my main mission in life now is to let everybody mainly the Aussies but including the world that the Coast Watchers turned the tide of the Pacific War when they repulsed the Japanese fleet that were going to Port Moresby to rebel and land unhindered, and also later on when the operations of Guadalcanal were so intense that Admiral Halsey made that famous statement that the Coast Watchers saved Guadalcanal and Guadalcanal saved the Pacific War. So I want everybody to know the part that the Aussies played in turning the tide of the war. And who knows, General MacArthur was released and he went on to do all his island hopping up to Tinian Island and the Adam Bob. So who knows, the Coast Watchers opened the door, <laughs> I have to say it, to finish the whole bloody war. <laughs> yeah, and this is one of the reasons why we had to get you on the podcast, Jim. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. But I've heard this statement. I've heard that the Coast Watchers were crucial and decisive factors in allied victories of Guadalcanal and Tuolagi and later on in New Britain. So maybe you can take us into a bit more detail about that. What was it about the Coast Watcher's role that made it so decisive? Well, I have to admit that because I was involved in, if you like, the northern areas of New Britain and etc., that my knowledge of the performance and successes of the Australian Aussies were a little bit researched from information from Eric Felt, the founder's book, and other operations. But nevertheless, they're real history. And one of the main issues was that when the Coast Watchers were formed, they were settled into about seven or eight teams of an expat who's had the experience of living in New Guinea, a radio operator, in which I was one, without previous New Guinea experience, and the natives. Now, without any one of those, the Coast Watchers just wouldn't have been able to operate. The role of the natives was magnificent. You wouldn't believe it when we pay them a couple of rolls of tobacco for their pay, which was disgusting. But they would create our camps, they would look after, they'd have sentries up. We were parked on a ridge, but we had a sentry at each end to protect us from any being caught up with any Japanese attack, etc. They helped feed us, but mind you, we had to feed them with our food droppings, which was 90% rice, and then they were all armed. But it was actually imperative that the Coast Watchers were not a belligerent force. Their strict mandate is not to be caught because if they're caught, they're not doing their job. And their job was to report enemy movements. Getting back to your comment, the two major events that stand out were the two operators, Kennedy and Jack Reed, who spotted the Japanese fleet, which had won Rabaul, and they were on their way down to the harbour, Kavina Harbour, on the way to walk into Moresby. Now, they alerted uh, Townsville headquarters. Townsville headquarters, this is, remember, about six or seven months post Pearl Harbour, and the Yanks were able to patch up their ships, etc., and they had five warships 
at the base of Townsville, Australia. Together with two other ships, I think it's the Australia and the Canberra, or a couple of those ships there, the nine ships went out and belted the backside off the Japanese. But it was one of those Pyrrhic victories because there were large damages done with sunken aircraft carriers for both sides. But the important thing is that the Japanese had to return defeated back to Rabaul. It was the first repulse of the Japanese attack that they'd enjoyed ever since Pearl Harbor when they'd come down to China, Malaya, Singapore, Philippines, without any uh, problem. So this was quite unique in the sense that the Japanese had been repulsed as they were also on the land when they did land on the beachheads in the northern New Guinea, but failed miserably when they ran out of food and support and were beaten by the Australians at Kokoda and the Bunangona. The fight at Douglas MacArthur's command, which is really terrible, I had to say it, but to continue on the fight when the Japanese had been beaten, down to the beachheads, the fight continued and the Japanese lost another, I think, 12,000 deaths and these Aussies lost also multiple deaths. So it was all unnecessary, but that's one of the bad luck things that I talk about in the war. Finally, it resulted in the, the first independent company, which had been formed by British commandos and were trained back in 1941 at Tidal River, in Victoria. They were commandos who had very rough training to learn all the actions that they needed in enemy territory and they were conjoined 273 of them with the 1454 Lark Force that the Australians had organised. They had organised in what was called the Bird Forces and there's the Sparrow Force in Timor, the Gull Force in Ambon, where the Japanese landed and beheaded 300 Aussies, and Lark Force, where the Japanese successfully invaded Australians. Unfortunately, after spending months of misery and slave work in digging tunnels and unloading and loading ships, 1,053 men were woken up on June 23, which coincidentally was about exactly six months after the invasion, and marched down and joined the Japanese prison ship called the Montevideo Maru, and uh, that sailed off to Hainan Island and off Luzon in the Philippines. It was well recorded that an American submarine uh, sunk it in the uh, 1053, including 200 civilians, would you believe, were drowned and that was a terrible tragedy and became the largest single maritime tragedy exceeding the Sydney which went down with I think 637 members. So getting back to that 273, about 37 of them were officers and they'd been transferred back to spend the rest of the war in Tokyo, Japan and were all repatriated alive and kicking. Uh, you know, they weren't too fit, but they were alive. And the 2,000 that were in Rabaul had perished. But the 273, 
because their officers had all gone and any ranks were gone, they were merged by transfer to become coast watchers. So one of my articles covers the fact that despite the fact we had three components of a coast watching party, we now needed the fourth one, which was just pure and simple military support, which was absolutely necessary. And in fact, Jack Mackey uh, of the independent companies had become one of the persons that let the publicity know that Guadalcanal was under attack. One of the other personal stories was that a chap named John F. Kennedy was commander of a PT boat and he was one night was carved in two and he and about 13 survivors went through a terrible time going from island to island to find food. They didn't have the material to even break open a coconut and eventually two of our um, natives under the control of Ron Evans elected to save the future president of the USA and he later on invited Ron and they had a cup of tea uh, in the White House. Did you guys know about that incident at the time? Did you know that someone had been saved from the island? No, it was only a fact that these two natives, we knew nothing about it. There had been report of a PT boat going down, but any knowledge of or any recollection of it being JFK, an important person, was absolutely unknown. It was only after the event that JFK was recognised and finished up with a purple heart for his heroism because mm. he did a great job saving uh, what was left of the crew. Mm. He did. I think the story there was one of his injured crewmates, he got a strap from their belt, put it in his teeth and swam five kilometres to one of the islands or something like that. I mean, it's quite a story of heroism, isn't it? But you obviously say about this separation between good luck and bad luck, and it sounds like you had good luck in very difficult situations. You yourself were going around on PT boats, much like JFK, His boat was chopped in half by a Japanese destroyer, but you were island hopping to check these out. And of course, you spent 10 months in occupied territory on New Britain. But other people in the Coast Watchers weren't so lucky, were they, Jim? Because there was an incident where some got captured and also executed by the Japanese. Can you tell us a little bit about this darker side of the history? Yeah, actually, uh, there's only one, when I say only one, we beheaded Syphilite who was caught and captured and tortured and decapitated. And there's a picture of it in my website on the beach at Itapi. Others at various stages, individuals who were caught, tortured, questioned, heaven knows what, and one way or another, 36 of them were killed. So in a way, 36 out of 40 or so is Probably a big percentage, but of course it's little in numbers, but the poor buggers were dead anyway. But And then uh, I quoted before the one where the, in Amon, the Japanese beheaded 300 of them. And also they beheaded the 10 survivors of the Z special unit that made that disastrous Rimanu repeat of the, the raid into Singapore. That should never have taken place. It was just the ego of one bloke that, insisted what happened, but it was, as I said before, the raid was pretty successful and it's got all the publicity, perhaps compared to Coast Watchers, on a bombing that did nothing to end the war, 
whereas the uh, Australians in the M Special Unit, I maintain, had everything to do with uh, turning the tide. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. The role of the Coast Watchers from your history and from reading what you've written really has been under-recognised and the role is just so important, pivotal, it seems, especially when it comes to places like Guadalcanal and also your own role sitting there for 10 months in occupied territory on New Britain and you can say as much as you like that you weren't at any threat of capture at the time but I think we can safely say it would be perilous for most of us if we were sitting in your situation and we thank you for that. But this brings me I suppose to my final question Jim. I know the Coast Watchers M unit were a special and secretive organisation and it has taken a long time for their story to be told and you're the last Coast Watcher to tell their story. So what made you want to tell it now? The um, answer to that, James, is that my son and also a, a very dear friend, for some reason, were trying to talk me into writing a book about my memories, etc. To which I replied, no, I can't write a damn book. And so eventually Robert, my son, who was very au fait with the internet, etc., said, well, what about a website? And he finally convinced me to do that. And I started with two or three episodes and uh, gradually added to them over probably four or five years. And it's amazing, James, the feedback is distinct from writing a book where whatever you've written is dead in the water. I've received feedback from people all over the world. I had a fellow from USA ring me and say, hey, Jim, I was on pilot on one of your Catalinas that picked some of you buggers up at the Kinsetic River and I've had information from a lady in Scotland and uh, I can't name the number of them. And the other good thing, of course, is with a website, I'm able to constantly reviewing it, which I'm doing now, and I've just added uh, the last one, which is why did the Japanese ever decide to invade Australia? And that's a, one of my final articles that may be of interest. So that is the reason why I went to a book. Writing that first main one, How the Coast Watchers Turned the Tide, I actually asked that anyone reading this let me know if you're still alive. And later on, two or three years later on, I got an answer from another one, Dixie Lee, but he's been absolutely mute. I wrote an article about him, but I maintain that I'm the last coach to tell the story because Dixie, having told his story, I've told the story of the Coast Watchers generally, which, apart from quite a number of books that were written after the war about individuals' travails and what have you, escaping, etc., etc., this is the only record now of the Coast Watchers as a whole, with a myriad of about 40 different articles, all allied to the Coast Watchers, and I must confess, I got a bit of information about my own life and family, <laughs> and, and sometimes I've found out that people are more bloody all interested in that than the bloody war. <laughs> so um, that's been the value of the website. And... Well, it is an amazing thing, and what I can tell you is you're succeeding in your mission to keep this history alive, to bring it to a bigger audience. I know that our listeners across Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific and around the world will find this fascinating. But also this history, your history, came to me from one of our listeners, Rebecca, who had read your website and said that we needed to get you 
on the podcast. See, that's interesting. That's how it spreads because my son, Robert, who helps me with the updates, etc., he's absolutely mad as hell. He's been homeless and trying to save the world. But in doing this, he's very jealous because I've been getting over four or five years an average of 20 to 30 to 40 clicks on it that people have picked up and they, they gradually gather and uh, go like a, a spider's web compared to a book where once you've written it, that's it. That's been the general use and message, whereas <laughs> he's lucky if he gets one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. You're going viral, Jim, especially off the back of this. Thank you also to your daughter and your son for their help with this. Very, very kind of them to send over the information and for your daughter for helping to record it today. And I'd like to uh, just mention that my lovely wife, Beryl, um, she's now turned 97, caught up with me. I'll be 98 next month. She was a veteran during the war too, uh, doing records. She might have even done the record of my twin brother, Tom, who was shot down uh, on his first flight. And she played a, another very important part in the war. And I still love her. And she's isolating well, like me. <laughs> well, you both keep safe. And I hope that when the world starts to return back to normal with this vaccine, we can have a beer over in Melbourne. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're going to have to get you on again to talk about Japanese plans to invade Australia. And I'll make sure that everyone is directed towards your website. Thank you so much. Thanks, James. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.